Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For this week's conversation with a veteran on Life on the Line, I spoke with Tom Hughes. Tom is a veteran of the Royal Australian Air Force, a former Australian politician and an incredibly prominent barrister. He's the brother of the late Robert Hughes, acclaimed author and critic, and father of three children, including Lucy Turnbull, our Prime Minister's better half. I spoke with Tom on his farm, so some of the sounds of farm life do creep in in the background, so if you think you hear a cow mooing, you are. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Tom, and I hope you enjoy it too. Today, I'm joined by Tom Hughes. Tom, thanks for speaking with me. Pleasure. Tom, let's start with your father, Geoffrey Hughes. I understand that he fought in World War I. Yes. What was his first deployment? He tried to join the Australian Flying Corps. He was very keen on flying as a young man. The Australian Flying Corps, for some extraordinary reason, didn't want him. So he travelled to the UK and joined the Royal Flying Corps. At that stage... He was 20. He arrived in England, joined the Royal Flying Corps, which was then an offshoot of the British Army. He arrived at the Western Front with the rank of second lieutenant in the spring of 1916. And he was a natural-born pilot, as well as being totally enthused about aviation. He had the gift, which I never had, of being a good pilot. I had to work much harder at being a pilot than he ever did and uh, I was very lucky in the sense that despite my deficiency as a pilot I uh, got on with it. Really quite a coincidence that my first operational unit had the same number, 10 squadron, as his first operational unit, 10 squadron RFC. 10 squadron RFC flew aircraft called RE8s, capital R, capital E, Eight. It was a squadron whose main task was observation, flying over the enemy lines to see what was going on. And he did that very efficiently. But his war career really flourished when he was posted to 62 Squadron RFC, which was a unit that flew Bristol fighters, which were at the top of the armaments provided to the Royal Flying Corps, and it was while he was so occupied that he uh, encountered von Richthofen. Let's talk about that fateful battle on 13 March 1918. Your father and the rest of his squadron, 10 or 11 planes? No, six, oh yeah, about 10, I think. 10 planes are flying, and then below them are 40, 50 other German planes with the infamous Red Baron among them. This is future Alex interrupting the interview to make a quick correction. Tom's father, Geoffrey, was in an aerial action against Lothar von Richthofen, the younger brother of the Red Baron. This is a little misunderstanding on my part, and Tom was just too polite to correct me. 
Now back to the interview. And one of your father's squad members... Broke plane, formation. Broke formation and dives down towards the enemy. Yeah, and Dad had to endeavour to rescue him, which I think he did, but it was a grave breach of discipline on the part of the pilot who broke formation. Dad was very lucky to uh, survive it. Combat odds of four to one, I dare yeah, say. that's right. And, and uh, my dear brother Geoffrey has a painting, crayon, I think, which represents my father's position as a, a sole operator because he'd broken formation to go to the rescue of this other pilot. Two of the six victories that day were attributed to your father and his observer, Clay. And then yeah. your father gets a particular decoration for that encounter. I think he, I think it won him the military cross. Yeah, mentioned twice in dispatches and a military cross. Uh, your father was is regarded as a major flying ace. I, I said two victories. And he hated the expression oh, did or the he? word ace. <laughs> what did he, he prefer? Because ace implies solitary success. And he was a team, always a team player. Team player. That's very noble. But he had 11, he's, credit, he's credited with 11 yeah. aerial victories and two of them were from that encounter with the yeah. Red Baron. Yeah. But he loved to fly. He did. Obviously. And he flew after the war. Be, he became a president of the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales and was very active in that position because he knew in his mind there would be another war and he wanted to participate in the provision of a nucleus of trained pilots who, in the event of another war, could play a useful part as uh, instructors of the men who would be needed for combat duties. He saw another conflict was yeah, to come he did. and the steady pair of hands needed to guide them next yeah. generation through it. That's right. Going back to his, during his first posting, actually, with Number 10 Squadron, his older brother, Roger, is also serving in the Australian Imperial Force and he's mortally on wounded. Somme. On the Somme. and he's mortally wounded. Yeah, and uh, some remarkable... Coincidence, my father was able to be at his elder brother's bedside when he, the elder brother, died of wounds. They were very close, and it was an act of great providence that my father was able to be present with his much loved elder brother at the time of his death. So, did your father talk about the war with you when you were growing up? Oh, yes, to an extent, but most people who participated in such a conflict tended to be economical in their descriptions of what happened. What did he go on to do after the war professionally? He completed his arts course, came BA at the University of New South Wales and then proceeded with the law course so that in 1922, I think, he graduated BA, Bachelor of Law Arts, and LLB, Bachelor of Laws. He was admitted as a solicitor of the Supreme Court of New South Wales and um, practised as such continuously until the time of his death. And you were born a year after his graduation, 1923. Yeah, uh, yeah 26 November 23. And did he take you flying as a young yes, boy? Yes, he did, yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did. Did it inspire you to pick up flying later on or that was a separate decision? No, I, I well, I decided, which is hardly surprising, that when the war came I would join the Air Force because that was my father's service. And um, so it came about. 
What was it like growing up in the Great Depression? Do you have any particular memories from that period? There wasn't much money about. My father was not only a solicitor, but he acquired positions on several company boards, boards of directors of public companies, and that helped somewhat to mitigate the rigours of the 1931 Depression. But um, the firm, Hughes, Hughes and Garvin, as came, really didn't turn profits during the Depression. Survival was the rule of the day. My dear mother was a very efficient provider. They battled through and uh, were able to provide adequately for their growing family. They were very happily married and very close to each other. You would have been at school when World War II broke out in 1939? Yes, it was my second last year at school. Do you remember the announcement of war being declared? Yes, I do. How did you feel at the time? Oh, well, I felt that the inevitable had occurred and uh, that I would be involved, having regard to my age. Your father had fought in the war to end all wars, as it was then known, but our country found itself in a new conflict. How old was your father at the time of World War II, roughly, and did he head back to the Air Force? At the outbreak of World War II, he was 45. And uh, Air Chief Marshal Burnett, who came out to Australia to assist in the formation of Australia's part in the uh, air activities of the Second War, heard of my father and asked him to join the Royal Australian Air Force with a view to being involved in the instruction of aircrew trainees. My father, who at this stage had a pretty good practice as a solicitor, very good practice as a solicitor, volunteered as part of the Empire Air Training Scheme. I imagine your father did have quite torn feelings because he'd finished the Great War with that suspicion more is to come and he'd kept his commission and more involvement with the Air Force going in a way, yet he'd finally now seen his practice through to fruition. Outbreak of war would have been difficult for him to reconcile which path he chose. Well, I don't think he experienced any difficulty about coming to the decision that he did, Burnett, the Air Chief Marshal, didn't have to press him very hard. And then when you come of age, you join up as well and decide to follow your father's service. What was your training experience like? I spent, first of all, several months at number two initial training school at Bradfield Park. In uh, Linfield? Yes, that's right. That passed uneventfully in the sense that I was able to pass the exams, the The real test was to be learning to fly. And I wasn't a very apt pupil. I had to work hard. And um, eventually, having left Bradfield to go to Miranda, which was a elementary flying training school, I managed to struggle through and uh, went to uh, Bundaberg in Queensland. Each of those places, it occurred probably because my relationship with my dear father that I was shoved into positions for which I may not have been entirely suitable, but I had to try. Even though you didn't have the flying gene passed on to you? as a No, but I, that, was, that was a bit of a struggle because I suppose I was my father's son. They put me into subordinate positions in relation to the control of a group of pupils on the same course. That passed without undue incident. The main thing was learning to fly, which I, which I wasn't very good. I could never have been a fighter pilot. I didn't have the necessary coordination. So you felt you didn't have the reflexes to be a fighter pilot? No, certainly not. 
So what did you choose to pursue? I wanted to be a flying boat pilot, either Catalinas in Australia or Sunderland's if I were posted to the UK. It's a large four-engined aircraft in the case of a Sunderland or a medium-sized two-engine and very slow aircraft in the case of Catalinas that landed and took off on the water, hence flying boat. To give you more versatility in operations. Well... It was thought convenient and necessary, perhaps, to have aircraft capable of taking off and landing on the sea or as in a harbour for coastal operations against the enemy. When you finished your training, you were posted overseas. Can you tell me about your posting? I thought I was very lucky to achieve the posting, which occurred in mid-1943. In June... I joined a draft, about 160 aircrew of my seniority, posted to a troop ship, Mount Vernon, a US vessel, and travelled across the Pacific to San Francisco, arriving there about mid-July. And you had an eventful journey there. You got a promotion on the way. Well, not so much promotion, but a position which fell to me because the man who was to command the draft had a nervous breakdown, which led to a situation where my colleagues, fellow junior officers, in effect elected me to replace him. He left the scene. He couldn't, he couldn't handle the pressure, what he regarded as the pressure. So you went from adjutant to CO? Yeah, officer commanding. And then you reached the United Kingdom. What was your role in the war from there? Mid-October 43, the draft of which I was a member debarked from Queen Mary, which was the troop ship that carried us across the Atlantic, to Greenock outside Glasgow. And uh, after a few months of relative inactivity, I had the good fortune to be posted to 10 Squadron, Flying Boat Squadron, the squadron I always wanted to join as, as the war turned out. Number 10 Squadron, just like your father. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Yeah, long arm of coincidence. So what was your role in Number 10 Squadron? Well, I started off in the lowliest aircrew position, being the second pilot of a Sunderland. The crew of a Sunderland flying boat had part of its strength, three pilots, captain, first pilot, second pilot. The second pilot started off as a taro. My main task was to refuel the aircraft before it took off, which is a laborious process, but easy enough to manage. Eventually... After some time as a second pilot, one graduated to the position of first pilot. To be a first pilot, you had to be able to take off and land in daylight. Night landings and takeoffs, something that you didn't have to achieve until you were on the path to becoming the captain of an aircraft. Towards the end of 1943, I was allotted the task of preparing myself to be a captain of Sunderland. I think my first operational flight as captain was in about February 1944 in the period leading up to D-Day. So I imagine in that first period in late 1943, you would have been frustrated by the lack of action. Oh, it wasn't frustrating, really, because the main task of the squadron was anti-submarine patrols in the Bay of Biscay. And uh, there was always the possibility of action in the bay because before the Germans became totally totally preoccupied with the Russian front they sent JU-88s very very efficient two-engine fighter aircraft out into the bay to try to 
find and shoot down Sunderland's, which, despite their man- manifest virtues, were slow and cumbersome and had a cruising speed of 110 knots, which is about 125 miles an hour. So you're assigned to be hunting U-boats, essentially. Can you talk me through the daily routine? You wake up and go to the mess, and then what happens there for your average day on patrol? Oh, well, usually there was a pre-dawn takeoff. You started off going up to the operations room where you were briefed on what you were to do on this particular day's activities, then into the aircraft, provided with very good rations. After takeoff, you'd go if you were going to, down the bay... You'd fly to the Scilly Isles and uh, await the day's activities but with your eyes skinned out using binoculars to find a U-boat or at least the wake of a periscope. As the anti-submarine war developed, the Germans utilised U-boats that were fitted with devices known as snorkels, S-C-H-N-O-R-K-E-L-S, which enabled a submarine, a U-boat, to operate at periscope depth with a field of vision. That was a new development, which, had it occurred earlier in the war, would have made the anti-U-boat effort exquisitely difficult because these U-boats fitted with the snorkel device could proceed just under the water at periscope depth and um, remain unseen or virtually unseen given the state of the the sea in winter or even more favourable weather conditions. So that was was the snorkel. And you had to be on edge all the time. It must have been exhausting because if you blink and miss the periscope once, then you've missed the U-boat. Yeah, yeah, true. During my time in the squadron, I never saw or had to attack a U-boat, but two crews attacked and sunk a U-boat on two separate occasions. And that was a great event. One crew was a crew of which a man, John Roberts, was the captain. He was a a very fine man, very efficient pilot. He and his crew attacked a U-boat on the surface with depth charges and sank it. The other kill was achieved by a crew of which the captain was a man called Tilly, Bill Tilly, who was before the war, before joining the Air Force, was a taxi driver in Melbourne. They come from all trades. Yeah, they were two great events. So I imagine that was both a mixture of good fortune and relief. Well, I would have enjoyed a conflict with a U-boat, but it just didn't happen that way. And in a very real sense, mine was a, as it turned out, a pretty safe war. During the early part of 10 Squadron's war activities. German JU-88s were a menace in the bay and the squadron lost several aircraft and crews. But it wasn't, on the whole, one would have to say, as tough a war as experienced by those in Bomber Command, where the loss loss rate was on a par with losses in the trenches in the First War. I think only the German U-boat crew exceeded the casualty rate of Bar Command in World yeah, War Two. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How was your first Christmas away from home in 1943? Oh, it was in the officers' mess at Mount Batten. Mount Batten was a permanent Air Force station in peacetime, and because of its location, it became 
a flying boat base. Aircraft were moored in what was called the Catwater, a small river convenient for mooring, which was a tributary of Plymouth Sound, the harbour. And you shared Christmas Day there with the squadron? Yeah. You wrote in your book, uh, Knee Deep in Beer. Yes. <laughs> that was the happy fate of those who went on, were not on patrol on that day. Germans weren't going to stop for Christmas Day, were they? No. Uh, funnily enough, I don't know whether it appears in the biography, a very fine man who was captain of Riverview, my secondary school, the son of a, a German planter in New Guinea who stayed in New Guinea after the First War. He finished up, that is the son, Ewald Jutrich, having been captain of Riverview in 1938 in Germany during the war because he went back to do his military service. And uh, he survived the war as a U-boat officer. Regretfully, I never, never met him after the war, but he was a very fine man and he played his part on the other side. He lived to a fair age. He was two or three years older than I and I wish I'd had the opportunity of comparing notes with him after the war was over, but that was not to be. Did the atmosphere over there change after D-Day in 1944? Yes, I think it did, because despite all the anxieties associated with the build-up to D-Day, everything went pretty well, and uh, we lost no aircraft on operations after D-Day. I had one experience doing a coast crawl, as it was called, down through the bay, fairly well inshore, and uh, encountered hostile German fire at a beautiful place called Belle-Ile, beautiful island, Belle-Ile. And uh, that was my only, or one of my only two encounters with hostile fire. That's why I have to say I had a lucky war. If I'd been posted to Bomber Command... There's a good chance we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's right, yes. Did the Allied invasion alter your role in any way? Not really. It just altered the format of the operations in, in the sense that we operated much further into the French, the coast of uh, occupied France. In August, when the uh, Germans are withdrawing from Western France, it meant that I imagine you had increased patrols in Biscay. Yeah. Well, most of our patrols were in down the bay. The other form of patrol we did was the convoy escort patrol, where we would fly out to meet an incoming convoy of merchant ships and fly around them uh, with our eyes skinned to spot U-boats. During one of your patrols, you have an encounter with MV Rostock. Can you tell me about that? We were in the bay. I think it was the 19th of June, 44, or was it later? Uh, 16th September. Oh, September, yes. We came across this uh, ship, Rostock, and uh, clearly coming out of one of the uh, Biscay ports in German control, and it signalled to us German hospital ship bound for Spanish port. And this obviously aroused our deep suspicions, and we patrolled around it closely, signalling for a naval escort group, which was not far away in the bay, to intercept as it did. And we saw the interception and uh, visited the uh, ship, not on board, but when it had been captured and uh, taken into Plymouth Sound. And uh, it certainly wasn't just a hospital ship. 
So that was an event for which we were emboldened to make a claim for prize money because we, we had participated in the interception. The Australian Parliament legislated to nullify any such claims. In the old days, we might have won prize money, but uh, understandably, the opportunity for doing so was negated by legislation. And when you had leave, did you get to travel at all? Oh, yeah, to uh, my mother's home village. I acquired a, a Singer sedan, 1934 model, for the princely sum of £35, and I used it to travel around the countryside. It was good fun. It was a very reliable little motor car. Especially for that price. Yeah, yeah. How did the war end for you? Oh, the war ended, I think, when I was... I think on VE Day I was in London on leave and saw the general rejoicing. Promptly joined in the celebrations, I imagine. Oh, yes. And then when was it you were sent back to Australia? Well, I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship, unsuccessfully, as it turned out. I bet they regret that. Oh, I don't know about that. I was beaten by two chaps who were somewhat senior to me and very able. But applying for the scholarship provided me with the opportunity of travelling back to Australia by air instead of in a troop ship. At war's end, your squadron received 24 DFCs, one DFC and bar, and 55 officers and other ranks were mentioned in dispatches. You were also decorated, but some 60 years later. Can you tell me about that? The French government, in a... uh display of kind goodwill, awarded me the rank of Chevalier of the Legion of Honour for what I had done in the Air Force in the Bay Bay of Biscay during the Second War. It was a very kindly award. So the war is over for you. What did you go on to do after the war? What I'd always wanted to do, continue with my law course. I'd passed first year of the LLB course, Bachelor of Law course at Sydney University, before I'd joined The exams were in December 1941 and I I scraped a parcel. So I was able, after the war, to start second year at the university. A flyer and a lawyer, just like your father. Mm. But without the great skills of my father, I had a lucky war. Your father can be the ace pilot and you can be the ace lawyer, (laughs) as much as he may not have liked that term. He He hated the term ace because he regarded praise directed to individuals in such terms as ace, as inappropriate, he concentrated on necessity of team effort and he thought that to call people aces was a process that detracted from the importance of team. Anyhow, that was his view and I fully respect it. His greatness did not come to its full fruition because he he died at age 56. Here I am at 93. I'm just the lucky one. I'm one of a family of four, of two other brothers, mm. yeah, and, and a sister. I'm the survivor of that, that generation, and my father didn't last as long as... He died of lung cancer? Yeah, he smoked. But in those days, it wasn't regarded as a deadly risk. No. Then you went on to have an incredible career. A prominent barrister made a QC in 1962, a member of federal parliament for almost a decade and the 19th Attorney-General of Australia, just to name a few. When you look back at such an incredible, diverse career, do you feel your time in the military helped shape or influence it in any way? Oh, I think it did. It uh, gave me a heightened 
heightened sense of the importance of team effort in whatever walk of life one might be operating. Well, your family members have all had strong careers too, most of them showing the legal and political genes of yourself and your father. Your daughter Lucy, of course, is the former Lord Mayor of Sydney and now Australia's First Lady, as it were, as spouse of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Your son Tom is also a barrister, your other son Michael a stockbroker. He was a stockbroker. He now uh, is the commercial director of a public company that runs ferries. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And, of course, your late brother, Robert Hughes, is the author of the incredible The Fatal Shore. I know, it's a marvellous book. Has the military tradition, therefore, in your family ended with you? I hope so. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I don't think any, any of us want military services or calling. It just so happened in the case of my father and of myself and of my uncle and of my cousin that they were caught, were caught up in two world wars. It wasn't a matter of choice, but it was, it was a matter of duty to give military service. Last year, author Ian Hancock wrote your biography, A Cab on the Rank. Did you work with Ian on the book? Oh, very, very much so. How was that experience reflecting on your life and documenting it? Oh, well, it was something that actually I enjoyed doing. And in the doing of it, I formed a, an enduring friendship with the author. We've only scratched the surface of your remarkable life today, Tom, so I would encourage everyone listening to check out A Cab on the Rank for the full story of Tom Hughes, QC. Thank you. Well, Tom, you've led an incredible life of public service. Thank you for all that you have done for your country and for taking the time to speak with me today in your home. Well, it was a pleasure to give time to speak with you. I've enjoyed the experience. I think you overrate my contribution, but that is very kind of you. That was my conversation with Tom Hughes about his own and his father's wartime service. If you like this interview with Tom Hughes, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. I don't just say that because we like five-star ratings and reviews, but it helps other people discover the show. You can also help by liking us on Facebook and following us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and follow us on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and write to us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and, as always, lest we forget. <laughs>